Empire podcast this week. I'm going to have a real good time. I feel alive, alive, alive with Rami Malek, star of Bohemian Rhapsody, plus the director of Mandy, Panos Cosmatos, comes in to talk about chainsaws and madness and all that Nick Cage goodness. All that and more on the movie podcast uh, cleaned up on this week's HQ Movie Trivia Special. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. I'm not going to tell you how much I won, but let's just say if I have an HQ retirement fund target of £1 million, then I'm just £999,976 short. Still. Wow. Cleaned up. up. Big, big money's coming my way. A few more wins, and I am out of here, guys. I am out of here. And uh, speaking of people who are out of here, this week I am joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning, one of whom is about to become an ex-colleague of such lethal cunning. <coughs> Judas! <coughs> Judas! <laughs> Don't look at me like that. Betrayer. <laughs> you can't talk. Oh That's my true. God. I'm out. <laughs> it is with his 30 pieces of silver. Uh, no, I'll introduce the other guys first. The other guys first. The other colleagues first. Uh, we are joined by Geek Queen Helen O'Hara. Hello. She's never left Empire. Apart from the time that she left Empire. It wasn't, wasn't voluntary. I didn't mean to. Yeah, we've all been there. Yeah, you, well, you and me well, have anyway. Yeah, yeah, we have. But like, like particularly nasty disease, you just can't get rid of us. That's it, we linger. John Nugent's also here. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. How are you, John? I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, good, good, good. You haven't left Empire, have you? I'll never leave. I feel like it's a life sentence. <laughs> <laughs> you don't it get is. that for murder, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So let's just get this. I want to clear things up right now. Okay, so I have left Empire in the past, but here I am. Mm-hmm. Helen's left Empire in the past. I mean, still technically left Empire, is, but here I am. Yeah, but here you are every here week without fail. There yep. you are. <laughs> yeah, you too. Mm, brilliant. Uh, John is not making any plans to leave I, Empire. I left Empire yeah. Online only to leave it's true. for yeah. Empire Print. So, yeah. you know. And Anyone else similarly, here? similarly, yeah. someone else has left Empire to go to Empire. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Making his first and final appearance on the podcast is uh, one of our genius designers. Uh, you know him best as at Ollie Og on Twitter. He is Ollie Gibbs. Hey, how's it good? Good, man. How are you? <laughs> good. Uh, so, Ollie, you've been at Empire. But this is what I like to do when people leave Empire. I like to bring them on the show and just kind of like get a sense of sense of it all. And also, can you take me with you? Uh, but, <laughs> mainly, but mainly, uh, I just want to talk about, you know, your experience at Empire and yeah, yeah. What's, the, what's it been like. You've been with the magazine now five for and five, a half years. Five and a half years. Yeah. You don't get out for GBH. <laughs> I mean that's 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 a long and, time. And you're still only fifteen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ollie is. What's your job title? Uh, I'm art editor. You just got a promotion, didn't you? Just got a promotion. And you turned around and stuck two fingers up. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I'm off. <laughs> I, I have to say this is all my fault. Why? Because yeah, it's o- Ollie, came, Ollie came with me. Uh, I did a Q and A a couple of years ago. For, with a poster designer, with uh-huh. a designer of film posters, and just talking about the, the work that goes into it and how they approach it and uh-huh. what's their starting point and all this kind of stuff. And he was sitting in the front row, absolutely uh-huh. wrapped the entire time, and was saying, I, I think this would be a really amazing thing to do, wouldn't it be? This would be great. Imagine designing posters. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Look at this stuff. It's amazing. 
And <laughs> cut two. Yeah, and, and the guy from Empire was there. So, um, so this is Empire. And it was Empire Design. Uh, they are one of the agencies that make film posters or films, mm-hmm. uh, trailers. They're one of the biggest in the UK. Um, they did the original train spotting poster. They do all the bomb posters. So wow. they're, they're fairly well known in Paddington. And, you know, so it's. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, it should be quite cool. Um, so that's what you're going to do? Uh, it's digital designer. Uh, so uh-huh. I'll be animating them for like the underground and all that kind of stuff. But hopefully uh-huh. at some point when they. Uh, Give me reins of uh, you know going for the full print. I might be able to design some stuff. So this is um, amazing. Amazing. This is amazing. So, yeah. uh, I can I can say this I can say this now because you're leaving. Uh, you are one of the most talented people I've ever worked with in, on Empire, uh, and you will be a, a real loss. But it's it's fantastic because you're incredibly talented. So it's great to see you've new fly led flag. This has been cut right. No, this is <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm genuinely. Uh, you, you know you you know you're you're, you're brilliant. So yeah. that's really kind. Really really That, is, that is true. And you know how much it pains Chris to say that. <laughs> so you know it's, it's true. gritted teeth. He's, uh, well, I would, suppose I would say that about Chris. Uh, Sorry, no. What I've done, what I've done is I have <laughs> set up a mirror, so I'm looking at, at oh, myself. I see. <laughs> it's like the Errol Morris. That's what that's doing. The lesser there. handsome one. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So when I was looking at, when I said you're genius and brilliant yeah, yeah. stuff I was looking at myself that's just, well, your, yeah, honestly, that's just your affirmation but just. if I'm honest Chris I would probably say I, this is no just properly like going for each other but I, I, I would say the same about you because uh, you kind of bring now. so much life to the, uh, the, the the magazine and um, yeah your, your ingenuity and you just alright bring... okay enough that. you guys uh, oh, enough God. of that I love you Chris it's going to be oh, sick God. <laughs> oh, God is it Plus. it's really dry in here uh, no okay I, I will miss Randy Newman more than anything. Oh, why did you no. say that name? Come on. <laughs> no, please. I mean, you could say it for later. It's, yeah. it's a trigger word. Have you ever wondered what a uh, conversation would be like between Randy Newman and Peter Lorre? <laughs> no. Yes. But I'm putting my fingers in my yes, ears I right have. now. I've taken off my headphones. Sometimes I wonder what that conversation would be like myself, Helen. Helen, why have you put your fingers in your ears? Take your fingers out of your ears, Helen. Otherwise, you won't be able to hear my great Peter Lorre impression. Isn't that right, Randy Newman? (laughs) Hey, everybody. I got a new song for the podcast. It's about my new friend. Peter Lorre, Red Lorre, Yellow Lorre, Peter Lorre, Red Lorre, Yellow Lorre. Peter Laurie, Peter Laurie is my friend. I apologise. This is your fault. I Laurie. really do apologise. But this is what we have to experience pretty much all the time with Chris in the office, mm-hmm. and I love it. You're good. You're fine. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Anyway, I could hear it vibrating through my cheekbones. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she said. Anyway. Oh, God. Oh. What? <laughs> How is that bad? I mean, that's literally what I said. And I'm, yeah, you know. it's just the, I don't know, the mental image that suddenly <laughs> anyway. flashed into anyway. my brain. Come on. Anyway. Come on. So what we do, what we'd like to do when people leave here on the Emperor Podcast is we'd like to have you guys write in and uh, and ask questions. And, uh, and Ollie, you've, you know, you've become kind of Twitter slash internet famous over the last few years because people may know Ollie for his Jar Jar Binks Maybe. obsession. Yep. Uh, that's just one of the things that you did, isn't it? That 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 got you, uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, some notoriety. That's the Force Awakens poster when that first got revealed. Um, yeah, and that's where you substituted all the charges. Substituted things. all the yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and that got picked up by quite a few people. Was interviewed on Air New, Ze- well, New Zealand Radio. Didn't it? Didn't it get used in, it? in an actual cinema? Yes, like? yes, it did. It got uh, in Egypt uh, in an IMAX. In Egypt, Egypt uh, IMAX, <laughs> and then it got used on an LA TV channel when they were talking about it. So that was. I kept people were sending me all these pictures of where it's been used, and it was amazing. That's incredible. Um, and then further ones that I've done, 
uh, have also been used. Mm. So I, I created my own one for Rogue One based off nothing, yeah. uh, and that got picked up again. That was in an mm. IMAX in India, which was uh, <laughs> that's an interesting one. Uh, but if you Google Rogue One poster, it was the top result because it was it was so high res. <laughs> And they hadn't had a poster by then. It was the one that you'd pick up, is my Jar Jar one. So, um, there's some people in Egypt and India just going to the cinema expecting to see Jar Jar. Oh, they're going to be gutted when they do. Yeah. <laughs> so where did this Jar Jar obsession come from for you? Is it, or is it an obsession or is it just it's funny to swap it's, everyone on the Star Wars It's mainly poster. just because it's funny. I mean, uh, when I, was, oh, I saw episode... Was, actually, Star Wars episode one was my first film, uh, Star Wars film I saw in uh-huh. the cinema. So, like I said, he's very young. Yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, just remember... kind of. I, I quite enjoyed the film. I mean, looking back now, it's... You know, I was a kid back then, so I, I did enjoy it. So I had an affinity to kind of mm-hmm. these characters. But um, it was more of a jokey thing. That was like, this would be funny just to put Jar Jar in. And that was it. Uh, and then it's just kind of turned into a, an obsession where I just kind of put in everything. I mean, right now, I'm going to have to stop due to <laughs> what my job is now, which is kind of a shame. But um, So the poster for Bond 25 and you uh, yeah. <laughs> slave on it for three days and your boss goes, oh, what have you got? And you turn around and it's just Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. And he goes, yeah. right. You're fired. It might be coming back to Empire. Yeah, <laughs> you maybe just go around all the different empires because what else is there? Empire There's Cinema? Empire Cinema, of the, course. No, Empire, has it been casino? rebranded? No, it's now uh, Cineworld. Uh, Darn. Uh, Empire Casino, yeah. Empire, Empire Casino. casino. I can't yeah. wait for that. Make the big yeah. bucks there. Hell yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'll be a belly dancer. You could do um, that. There's you could restart the empire. The British Empire. Yeah, <laughs> British Empire. Yeah, yeah you could just That's colonize well. some nations. Yeah. If they do yeah. a remake of the British Empire, is yeah. it yes, oh. yeah. it's far Hello. preferable. Yes. It's the um, the TV series Empire. You yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You're a natural cookie. I mean, like, these are all on my list. <laughs> the biscuit, <laughs> so, I think, is what we call it over here, Helen. Apologies, yeah. So, <laughs> it's a natural biscuit. Uh, so Jar Jar Binks was one thing and then another thing that you did that, uh, that, that got you noticed by the mainstream media was uh, you did that what was that weird thing you did in the museums where you, you... oh face app yeah, yeah. so oh, yeah. Uh, I went on holiday with my girlfriend to Amsterdam uh-huh. and it was actually her it was her uh, idea so there was a photo of me looking quite miserable because I was on the top of this tower and I was scared of heights and it was windy and I was petrified and she was like you know what we could just fix this with this app which puts a smile on your face and it does it really well where it genuinely looked real so i was quite impressed i saw when he uses photoshop and everything i was like this is quite impressive so we went to this gallery saw all these miserable rembrandts and they all look they just look all quite grumpy so she was like why don't we just kind of use it live here so we went around and it works remarkably well on paintings sculptures all of it uh and yeah it got picked up by all the new, the local newspapers and um all the newspapers here as well uh, picked up on it and it, bbc it, weren't you, you bbc yeah. they did a big article on it uh i was called a a digital graffiti, a digital, what was it, graffiti? Digital graffiti artist. No, no, no. Uh, oh. va- a digital vandal, I think it was. Virtual vandal. Virtual vandal. Wanksy, I think Virtual vandal is what they described <laughs> me as. Um, so, uh, and they, yeah, they were just talking about how, or the reasons behind the grumpiness of those paintings mm. back then uh, and how it was meant to kind of show uh, notability and... Uh, authority. And authority, yes. Yeah. So if they smiled, it was a bit cheaper. Mm. And it was a bit... You know, <laughs> so they just wouldn't do it. Um, so this, it was my kind of duty to go around and just give them a bit of a cheeky smile. Yeah. <laughs> give us the British humour, you know. I think the Mona Lisa would have approved. <laughs> right, so what we want to do is we've, uh, we've asked people to send in some questions for you. It's sort of an exit interview type thing. So I'm going to very quickly do this on my phone. All right, so... First question comes from David Hughes. This parish, uh, we've already kind of covered this, but going from Empire to Empire, is it inevitable that Ollie ends up on Empire, the TV show? Hope so, yeah. 
But I mean, my next journey will be any empire. With it is going to be any any empire. Yeah, yeah. He's happy with that. Uh, All right. So who's the next person? Revolutionary. Revolutionary asks. That's a strange way to pronounce that word. Revolutionary. (laughs) Favorite and most importantly, least favorite empire cover ever. Well, I would say the favorite of mine is the one I did. Because <laughs> I, you know, I have to do it. Which is, uh, I did uh, Bad Times at the Royale recently, which I got the opportunity to kind of make it from scratch. So yes. make, make the assets and uh, the imagery. And, um, but uh, That's important for nerds like you, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that sort of stuff. It's pretty I mean, cool I don't to know work. That is. Normally we're su- sometimes supplied images that our creative director kind of directs and makes sure we get it right. Yeah. But this one was built by me, which is quite nice. Yeah. But I mean, if in reality, the, my favorite is put a Godzilla. Sub, a subs cover, uh, oh, yeah, which was that red one, which was yeah. it, it yeah. was really beautifully done, mm. um, and it was so much better than the film. <laughs> <laughs> I like the film. <laughs> no, I was a fan. Uh, the subscribers are all pretty amazing, to be fair. Yeah, uh, and again, our creative director does such a good job of getting these artists to do them. Mina Lima's recent one for Fantastic Beast was pretty mm. pretty cool. I love that um, one as well. Yeah. What about the um, iPad covers? Because you do like quite a lot of the iPad yes, stuff, don't you? And so there was a period. Of We've now moved on to our junior designer, Holly Jose. Okay. Oh, Jose. Um, she's doing it. But uh, yeah, so I did them for quite a while. Uh, and that, that was always a fun job, kind of taking them apart and bringing life to them and trying to make them a bit more Hollywood. Um, yeah. Because that's, that's part of the fun of it, is to try and make it as filmy as possible. So, And that, again, that follows into what I'll be doing in my new job, really, is to kind of making flat stuff into an animation, but hopefully with more video work and uh, footage. Wow. Awesome. Cool. How boring is that? I'm not, I'm not, not at all. I tuned out. I did tune out. <laughs> did, did you admit to a least favourite? And remember, oh, it can least. be ever, so it doesn't have to be during. Oh, God. Name something like Robin Williams with his trousers on his head. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. just like the universally, just the most <laughs> lamented Empire cover, isn't it? Pretty it's much. Just it was, yeah, I, well, we weren't at Empire at the time. No, so we no, can all... So we can all say <laughs> shit. So let's go with that one, or let me see... The Gerard uh, Depardieu one? That's, Gerard Depardieu. Which one was I mean, that? That's from early 90s, I think. But Green, uh, green what, card, I think. Green card. Even at the time, it feel, feels like, really? We're going to put him on the cover? Oh, I see. It's uh, one of the greatest is, actors yeah. of, of all Cyrano time. Cyrano de Bergerac is a yeah. brilliant film. He was a big, big noise at the time. Now he's just Accused. big and noisy. Hey, hey, Helen. Hey, come on now. I apologise. Yeah. Je apologise. <laughs> Oh, good Lord. First Peter Lorre, <laughs> then Randy Newman, then French. Yep. What are you doing, Chris? I like to make oh the language. <laughs> I, 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 this is, again, what we have to hear every day, mm-hmm. and I will miss it. Uh, John Izzard, Yonix 101, asks, going slightly one-dimensional here, best movie poster typeface. Oh, this is going to get... Ooh, what? Oh, God, here we go. Okay. Best movie poster typeface and worst use of Photoshop in a movie poster. Okay, well, I'm going to go straight for the worst Photoshop. Because mm-hmm. oh, is this going to be about kerning? No, no, this is much worse. The X Men First Class. There was this horrific one of James McAvoy. Um, it was just like shadow of the wheelchair and his uh-huh. face, kind of with a feathered cut out of his face, just in the wheelchair in a darkened silhouette. I don't know if you remember it, but it's if you Google it, it's I'm utterly Googling terrible. I'm Googling. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, more recently, I think uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, there was one that would look like it was a, a clusterfuck of just all the cutouts. Oh, that was up. awful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that. that yes, one. that is the oh, one. Um, and they good. did multiple of them with yeah, um, Michael weird. Fassbender and... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? So Google, just, Google X-Men yeah. first class poster and it's the first result. And it is just like 
<laughs> James McAvoy's sort of ghostly apparition coming but through in, a shadow own, of himself. In but, his own lap, it's yeah, weird. Yeah. It's, it's James McAvoy's head emerging from... From what, his crotch. From, well, let's be honest, because this isn't the silhouette of Charles Xavier in first class because he's got hair. Oh, yeah. So that's Patrick Stewart. So James McAvoy's <laughs> head is protruding... How can I put this politely? From Patrick Stewart's... Probably cock. just best. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> I was I was hoping there was a different way that sentence could end, and and I guess not. Okay, and if point. we were to take yeah. that James yeah. McAvoy's nose is Patrick Stewart's, you know, Never mind. appendage. Then, oh. oh, I did not. I mean, know he's going to go this way. He's, he's quite well it's, endowed. What by, by this standard? Sorry, please. Cut this is out. really getting. Mm. Again, this is another conversation we normally have in the office. So this is sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you're gonna you're gonna miss this when you go to work with normal people. <laughs> don't no say, talks of uh, genitalia. That would be interesting. <laughs> don't say ten things that will get you arrested anywhere else before eleven <laughs> thirty. Um, uh, what was the other bit of that question? It was something about oh, my, best uh, movie poster typeface. Yeah. Um, Obviously, as we know from the SNL sketch with um, Ryan Gosling, it's papyrus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, you know that, that you is did. a favourite. That is a favourite among uh, graphic designers. Uh, It depends if you're talking about uh, the typeface of logos. I guess Star Wars is the most Uh is the most famous for that. Uh, It's the most recognisable. So I kind of put it to Star Wars, or because it's 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 never really changed. It has actually the first 1970 was 1977. Mm -hmm. That first original poster, yeah, slightly different, but. yeah, Star Wars. Star Wars. There you go. Controversial choice from all the. Oh, that was the best. He was. I think he was saying the best. best. Yeah, yeah. All right. DT Heslop, David Heslop, have you ever snuck any personal in-jokes into any of your art for Empire, <laughs> like a street sign labelled Hewitt's Passage or something? Yes. Oh, in really? fact, <laughs> in the latest Empire, the new one, uh, which no one knows about yet, uh, that Jar Jar is snuck in there. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where it is, uh, I don't know whether to reveal or not, but it is quite small. I mean, you could have an eagle eye to really find him. Um, but maybe that'd be a game for the, uh, for the listeners to, to see if they can find them. Okay, first person to tweet Ollie with the location of Charge Jar in this month's issue wins. And, and this will be the December. The one that's just about, just to, come about out. to come out. Yeah. Uh, when to come out? Uh, ooh, is it next, was it next week? It's next week. Mm. Yeah. Is it next week? November 3rd. When's that? Uh, week after next then. Wait, what? I'm no, not, not sure. November 3rd. That what am I talking about? Right. That doesn't when seem does right at all. Um, November 1st. Oh, that, yeah, November that's 1st. next week. Next week. So next week's issue, which has... Can we say it was on the cover? Probably not. It has something on the cover. I've forgotten. But anyway, <laughs> it's good. And uh, so Jar Jar Binks... It's a blast. It's, oh, I know uh, what's on the cover. I, the cover. <laughs> I worked really hard in this issue. <laughs> it nearly killed me. Now I remember. Uh, yes, and there's stuff in there, and Jar Jar Binks is in there. So if they tweet you, the first person to tweet, Ollie wins. You just get a like. You know? For fuck's sake. I'm just going to oh, get a like. What about that's the, that's what, important. What about that, that, those stacks of Empire Benjamins you're about to... <laughs> We're about to, um, you know. No, no, just a like is quite important these days. I mean, it's worth a thousand words. Maybe maybe the, you could give their details to Chris and Chris can send them something from the office. No, just a like. Just a like. Just okay. a like. We're leaving it there. Plainview Art asks, if no. you had to apologise for one thing during your time at Empire, what would it be? Leaving? Oh, oh man. Oh. I guess. Oh. I mean, right in the fields. Yeah. Right in the fields. Yeah. Oh. I don't <coughs> Traitor. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry, we're today. I don't know. Okay. Uh, last one from Steve Holmes Zero. Who's the most annoying person at Empire? Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'll, I'll ask the question now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Who's the most annoying person at Empire? Oh, yes, Chris. 
I'm... Guys, can you leave the room, please? I just need some alone time with Ollie. Sure. Yeah, okay? Okay. Listen, you fucking pissant. <laughs> I made you. I could break you as well. Okay? So I'm gonna ask the fucking question again. If you say my name, I will literally kill you. Why are you stroking my leg when you're doing this? Fuck you. All right, here we go. Okay, guys, you can come back in now. It's good. What was that about? Uh, Steve, oh, fine, nothing. I, nothing. Just, I just, I, I just I, wanted I to him. say something personal to Ollie because I didn't you want you guys, guys around. Cause such I, a I, bromance. I didn't want a squirt of you. Uh, at Steve Holmes, <laughs> Zero, who's the most annoying person at Empire? It's, it's, uh, there is no one. There's no annoying person apart from Chris the person I'm staying with. Right. <laughs> there we go. All right, yeah. Yeah, it's me. Did you enjoy those questions? Yeah, it's quite nice to be on the podcast. It is, isn't it? I'll come back next... Oh. (laughs) (laughs) You've made your empire bed, now lie in it. Uh, If you want to have your question read out on the Empire Podcast and answered by people who aren't Ollie Gibbs, uh, you can get in touch via a number of methods. We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. We're also on Facebook as Empire Magazine. And you can email us podcast at empireonline.com. And I will be creating an empire podcast as a rival. How dare you? There's already another Empire podcast for the How TV show. <laughs> Actually, there's there's lots of Empire yeah, podcasts. We, we could we this could get really really yeah. confusing really yeah. fast. What's yours going to start with? Like bongly bingly bing. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, time now for our first guest this week. Panos Cosmatos is not just the son of the director George P. Cosmatos, who of course directed the likes of First Blood Part Two and Tombstone. And films like that, sadly, no longer with us. Uh, but he is now a director in his own right, and he made the absolute gonzo, near-instant classic that is Nick Cage going mad in Mandy, which is out on DVD on October 29th. When is that? Is that Monday? When is that? Monday. I Monday. Think. Monday, October 29th. Thank you, Helen. I'm completely away with it with dates at the moment. So there you go. You can pick up Mandy on DVD on October 29th. It's also still in cinemas if you can find it in the UK. And Panos came in to London recently and we sent along Ben Travis to have a chat with him. That you know, touches on the, the crazy stuff in the movie as well, but also gets a little bit personal, a little bit deep about uh, Cosmatos and his, his life. So do enjoy. So welcome to the Empire podcast, uh, Panos Kosmatos, director of Mandy, uh, probably the strangest film in, in a good way that I have seen this year. How are you doing? Thank you. Uh, it's great. I'm doing great. I saw the film last night at the, uh, there was a screening in a church in yeah. Union Chapel in Islington. Yes. And it was a really unique venue to see this film, which has yeah. lots of uh, <laughs> kind of themes. As well, it's Nicolas Cage versus religious cultists yeah. uh lots of intense scenes of battling chainsaws and battle yeah. axes and yeah. all kinds of madness yeah. um what was it like for you seeing the film in a church did you ever expect that mandy would ever be shown in a church uh, only in my wildest daydreams <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it really kind of had the vibe of a, of a king diamond concert or something yeah <laughs> it was <laughs> like the, the church lit up with a in those lights so I, I wanted to start by asking, because it's such a singular, unique film. It is such an original film. Where did Mandy come from? Was it, was it a fever dream? Was it a nightmare? There is so much kind of rich imagery yeah. in here. Like, where does that come from? There are things in the movie that came straight from my, from my dreams, like, like the Black Skulls. I, mm-hmm. you know, uh, were sort of born of a, from a nightmare that I had where I was in this strange abandoned farmhouse, and there was these men covered in kind of black tar 
uh, were just you know they they, they were uh, they, they exuded a malevolence and cruelty and moved very strangely and uh, that after I had that dream I realized that's what what the black skulls had to be. <laughs> um, but it was a long, I mean, both this and the, my first one, Black Rainbow, was a very long kind of strange process of both of them being born. Uh, 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 I mean, I, I guess I have to say, you know, like in, in, in 1997, my mother passed away and I kind of spiraled into a sort of uh, self-destructive vortex of drinking and uh, self-destruction. And 10 years later, my father died and I realized that I hadn't dealt, dealt with my mother's passing at all and that I had, had to do something about it. And, mm-hmm. uh, so I went into therapy and started to be able, you know, purging the, all the grief I'd suppressed. And I ended up having a moment of clarity where I imagined myself in that house 10 years later still not having done what I wanted to do, not even having attempted to make a film. Mm-hmm. And it was such a, a jarring kind of realization that that could happen that I, I immediately sort of realized that all of my artistic sort of Im- impulses, which I'd been sort of dispersing into various different things like photography and collage and stuff and, and short films, I, I, re- I realized I needed to put all of those instincts and all of the, that energy into just making film. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for example, with Black Rainbow, I, I had been working on a sort of conceptual art piece about, about a, a, a fake New Age religion. Mm-hmm. And I realized that belongs in the film. Yeah. Everything belongs in films. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and then, you know, everything started to sort of flow more freely when I, once I had made that decision, you know. And uh, I started writing uh, Black Rainbow, which I think was, you know, dealing with me suppressing those emotions for so long about losing my parents. And I, and I think now looking back, I realize I started writing Mandy at the same time almost as an antidote to that because that film is so controlled and it's so much about these, these sort of dark, uh, you know... Uh, Underbelly, the underbelly of my of my feelings that I, I impu- unconsciously needed some kind of uh, antidote to that, where mm-hmm. these to write something emotional and outward that was about the sort of volcanic eruption of, of all these things. Mm-hmm. I think because um, for all the like visual craziness and like where the film goes in its final third, actually the the there's such a strong kind of core of emotion and, and pain to it as well. Yeah. Was, so that was something that was really important for you to, to ground it in that? Yeah. I I think one of my only goals with a film actually was to, I hoped that it's, it would make people cry. Mm. And, I, and uh, you know, I, I think some people will go in kind of expecting a, a, a freak show or something and, and, and then are surprised to find that it's actually like a very emotional film. Some people don't sort of connect to that level at, of it until seeing it maybe two or three times. But mm-hmm. I've had a friend of mine last night who saw it, saw it at the church for the third time and, and suddenly was overcome with emotion, which I find interesting, you know. Um, that's good. I mean, I'm trying to make films that stand up to repeat viewings and have la- things that reveal themselves over time, you know. Mm-hmm. I think especially the, the experience of, of watching Mandy, it's such a uh, hypnotic film. Everything from, from the way the visuals and the mm-hmm. and the sound mix and, and Johan Johansson's score comes yeah. comes together, I think, yeah. especially f- uh, it was my first time seeing it last yeah. night, and it is such an overwhelming yeah. uh, experience on, on kind of so many levels. Um, for for you, what films stand out that, that are an experience to watch that have that overwhelming kind of sensibility to them? Which films made an impact on you in, in that way? I feel the, the, the film that really hits me in that similar way is, is, the, is The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, every time I see it, it feels like a completely uh, uh, 
bone rattling emotional experience for me. You know, I actually had a, a I went and saw that movie once in a, in a repertory theater that had a very very bad sound system mm-hmm. where there was no bass but extremely piercing high notes treble. And I think it triggered an acid flash back in me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I started seeing myself as Danny mm-hmm. and and uh and 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 uh Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson as my as my parents and it was just like it was a it was an exhausting, intense emotional experience. Mm-hmm. And the film is just so visually driven and so sonically driven. You know, i uh, making Black Rainbow my, my goal was to make a sort of trance like a trance film and a mo- uh, a sort of te- a, a audio visual experience almost like a musical in a way mm-hmm. and and I, I was satisfied enough with the result of that that I wanted to go further with it on Mandy and, and really kind of make almost like a rock opera mm-hmm. I mean it is I think it's like the most metal thing <laughs> I've ever yeah. seen Mandy yeah. you feel that kind of through and through and you were talking yeah. there about uh about acid flashbacks mm. and uh, there is kind of LSD in the film that's sort mm. of a, a theme and a, and a plot point and mm. also I mean the visual style of it is mm. is very trippy and intense and kind yeah. of everything's bathed in, in strange colours how yeah. do you go about taking those kind of conceptual ideas and making them a reality the, on the screen I think of the drugs in the film you know in these films as like they're almost like mythical catalysts mm-hmm. that can sort of plant you know trans, trans, uh, transport your characters into these kind of mythical kind of states of mind and these mythical realms um yeah, I mean, I did, I did in high school. I smoked lots of weed and mushrooms and, and acids and stuff like that. But eventually, kind of after a friend of mine passed away, it uh, it, it, it started to, the, those trips started to turn dark, mm-hmm. and I became aware of like a gaping kind of uh, what felt like a hole in my heart, and that's all that I would feel when I when I would do drugs. And uh, so, the what was a, initially a sort of positive, uh, what felt like an enlightening experience turned very very dark. Um, and so I'm kind of like suspicious of of, of this idea of uh, of people using those those substances for prolonged periods of time to to achieve some kind of uh, enlightenment. Mm-hmm. I think and, and, you know inevitably it's just, it's they're going to turn the, the it's going to sort of start eating away at somebody you know mm-hmm. if they depend on it too much. With those experiences, yeah, kind of turning dark for you. Yeah, do you, do you channel that into film now? Is is film your drug these days? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, you know, it always was, you know, and I think, you know, during that period when I, when I was trying to, you know, obliterate myself that, that I kind of lost track of that, you know, and and, uh, and it's been kind of nice to just kind of really not, not, not that stuff. This this film is, it is maximum yeah. Nick Cage. Yeah. Is there anybody but Nick Cage who you think could have pulled this off? Did you always have him... In mind, um, how would the film have functioned differently? Yeah, I don't him? know. It's, it's it's weird to think, you know, like if you paint a painting one day after you actually, you know, if you if you see a painting on the wall, if that painting had been painted painted a day later, would it, would all the colors be different? You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of a strange thought. And these things are so there's so many disparate factors that go into making a movie that it's like if you know if you make a movie the next week it could, so many things could end up being different potentially you know mm-hmm. as far as cast and stuff like that. But originally I I I I wanted uh, him to play the the villain Jeremiah Sand and uh, I'd gotten feedback that this this was a possibility so mm-hmm. I wrote rewrote all of Jeremiah's dialogue for him him with him in mind and. 
and I went and met with him, and, and he said, I don't want to play Jeremiah, I want to play Red Miller. And I was so, like, blindsided by that that, I, you know, I just, you know, my, my uh, I felt, you know, my... Was that in a way if you hadn't have thought of him for the character, or you just didn't think Nick Cage will be the lead in, in my movie? Yeah. You know, I, I hadn't thought of him for the character, and I just, you know, I just... I, I was sort of fixated on the idea of him playing Jeremiah, and I kind of, you know, I... I uh, kind of fallen in love with that idea so when he said you know I don't want to play the villain I thought either this guy is an asshole or you know or he just doesn't want to play the part you know Mm -hmm. but uh, I did like him you know so uh, I knew that it wasn't that he was was a jerk I think he just was being open with me but I you know in that moment I couldn't picture him playing Red Miller so Mm -hmm. I I went away but then like a week week or two or maybe it was like a month later I I had a dream where I was watching the movie Maddie completed with him playing Red Miller and uh, it was so undeniably like uh, dynamic and and amazing that that I I immediately woke up and called our producer and said you know I think I made a mistake and uh, we should we should ask him to play play Red Miller if he'll still have us well I mean when you get um, Nick Cage in in Maximum Flow how how do you direct Nick Cage were you quite hands on with him of, of what you wanted from him in those well, kind the of Nick really Cage wild scenes on screen isn't, isn't like Nick Cage <laughs> yeah. on set mm-hmm. you know uh, I, I found that his approach was very uh, um, modulated and thoughtful and mm-hmm. uh, you know we, we had conversations about how to modulate this performance to make it the most effective and, and how to ramp into these more extreme moments in a way that wouldn't seem forced Mm -hmm. hopefully towards the end of the film there is a chainsaw on chainsaw fight sequence how how do you choreograph a chainsaw fight because i don't think i've ever seen that in a film before how how does that there's been a few instances of it that that, uh, a a sort of a brief yet uh, wonderful history of chainsaw fights in films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what, what were you drawing from? What, did, what was your inspiration for it? Well, when I was a kid, I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, mm-hmm. and there's I, there's a chainsaw fight in that. Although I don't recall what that happening in the film when I when the first time I saw it, I think I was just so overwhelmed with uh, with, uh, with with uh, horror. The first time I saw that film, I was so freaked out by it. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was a film from the '60s called uh, Dark of the Sun. I think that might be the first instance of, uh, ever of a chainsaw on Chainsaw Fight. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's uh, uh, Phantasm 2, mm-hmm. which I think this film is the most direct uh, reference to. But uh, I think, you know, it's just one of those ideas that you have that's, uh, you start to realize the more and more you go towards actually trying to physically pull it off, how fucking crazy <laughs> y- you were for having this idea. Mm-hmm. But we were lucky because we had we had an amazing stunt coordinator Ben Cook who mm-hmm. uh, who had worked on like Thor Ragnarok and Casino Royale and stuff and we worked together to sort of create the the, the choreography with Nick and then um, we had one day one night to film it so I mm-hmm. I just me and Ben uh, Ben Lowe the DP had to figure out a very like methodical way to cover that so that we could get it in in one one night mm-hmm. and uh, what was that night like Tell me about that day on set of, of trying to, especially trying to do that all in, in a day. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. I would describe it as a, as a straight up living hell. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, it's like trying to squeeze, you know, it's like, it's just, it's so much coverage to get in such a short amount of time that, mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah, I, it was, I would, it was a very intense, uh, experience. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, do you find in those um, in those times where um, you've got limited time, yeah. limited resources to get everything done? Um, do you find that you really thrive in those conditions? And because I mean, you, you you wouldn't tell from from seeing the film that that yeah. was all kind of under those pressures. Yeah, I, I also made my life harder by insisting that we have a wind machine and smoke machine going the whole time. <laughs> you know, so it's like. Uh, yeah, I I really really have it in for myself, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if I thrive in the, under the circumstances. I mean, it, you just kind of go into a into a, a crazy trance and and and, and push forward and, and uh, pray to all the gods that you're going to be able to pull it off in time. And let's talk. Let's talk the Cheddar Goblin. Right. Um, who's a, a uh, sort of mascot character who appears uh, in a brief part of the film, but again, it's something that I will never forget, which is a sort of small gremlin-like creature vomiting yeah. macaroni cheese onto a couple of small children. Yeah, <laughs> where where did that come from? How did you achieve mac and cheese vomit well, on the I screen? Think, I think it came a little bit out of out of cabin fever, where me and the mm-hmm. producer uh, Josh Waller were sort of trapped in a in a production office for for for, for days and weeks on end, and just kind of going insane. And so we would just riff on stupid jokes and stuff like that. And at some point, we, you know, I started riffing on uh, on this idea of a goblin that vomited mac and cheese. And we would, you know, discuss the physiology of the goblin and, uh, you know, does the does the mac does the macaroni manifest in the goblin with the and the cheese, or <laughs> mm-hmm. are there two different organs in the goblin that ma- that create the mac and one that creates the cheese, or do you feed? the goblin macaroni and mm-hmm. then the cheese sauce is his is what's inside of him and it coats right. the macaroni and then he vomits it up anyways stuff like that <laughs> which which do you choose to believe of those, <laughs> of those options What's, what would you go for i like the, the idea i like the thought that he has two separate organs that generate one that mm-hmm. grows macaroni type uh nodules and mm-hmm. one that creates this uh, cheese lake sauce <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, I mean, the, the scene in the movie where that happens, I, I, I wanted him, you know, the sort of idea of the scene is that he has just had the most traumatic, harrowing experience of his life, and he walks mm-hmm. into his home, which now feels like an alien landscape, and that is magnified by the absurdity of this thing that's on television. It's like the universe slapping him in the face with its mm-hmm. with its lunacy, you know? And originally we were just going to try to find an actual commercial from that era that gave that feeling. But at some point, after talking so much about Cheddar Goblin, we kind of fell in love with with the idea and <laughs> thought maybe we can find a way to actually make this commercial. But we had like so little time, and 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 the, all the department heads were so stretched so thin already that we thought you know we have to outsource this. Mm-hmm. And we were both friends with this uh, this amazing filmmaker called Casper uh, Kelly, who I think has made one of the most uh, stunning short films ever made called okay. uh, Too Many Cooks. Oh, what, that guy! The, yeah. um, I mean, that, you've mentioned that. That's going to be stuck in my head for the rest of the interview now. <laughs> yeah, and so wow. we, we we called him and we're like, we have a, a thousand dollars or something. Can mm-hmm. you make a Cheddar Goblin commercial? And, and he said, Yeah, I think I can do that. <laughs> and a few weeks later, there it was. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I sent him. You know, I just made like a lookbook that was essentially just photos of of ghoulies. Mm-hmm. from the film Ghoulies and uh, photos of mac and cheese. <laughs> Just to get the exact right look for it all. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. It makes so much sense, the, the link between Too Many Cooks and, yeah. the, uh, and yeah. the Cheddar Goblin. Yeah. And in fact, there was a Cheddar Goblin at the screening last night. Yeah. Um, if, uh, well, that was, it's, was that cheddar. your first kind of in, interaction with the Cheddar Goblin? 
No, uh, Casper was nice enough to give me the actual the original Cheddar Goblin when Amazing. we when we met at Sundance, and I was very moved by that. <laughs> and Cheddar Goblin now lives in my home. The OG <laughs> OG Cheddar Goblin does anyway. <laughs> Amazing. Um, the score for the film is is Johan Johansson, yeah. and it's still it it still feels really strange that he's that he's not with us anymore yeah. and there through the year there have been a, um, a couple of films coming out obviously uh, Mary Magdalene earlier this year was another um, Johann score and his mm-hmm. his music brings so much to Mandy mm-hmm. in terms of the atmosphere and yeah. the feeling of it yeah. um, can you tell me a little bit about what it was like working with, with Johann and um, how did you guys kind of create the the soundscape really for, for Mandy I, di- I didn't know what to expect from from him before I, before I talked to him and you know after only after chatting with him on the phone for like 15 minutes I realized that he really resonated with a lot of the same things that interested me uh, mm-hmm. and then he grew up in Iceland listening to heavy metal and stuff like that and and you know uh was just so passionate about 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 the movie even just from having read the script you know he, he really really was already starting to sort of imagine what he wanted to do and you know I I I I wasn't sure at first because you know I, I I thought his scores are quite austere, but after talking to him, I realized that he was also interested in, in exploring these kind of disintegrating sonic textures. And and the most important thing I think to both of us was that it wouldn't be a, pa- a pastiche of old of old styles; that it was a, more like an interpretation of them and a kind of strange disintegration of them, like a disintegrating rock opera, is what I think I said to him. And you know. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I felt I, th- I felt I felt a very very uh, kindred spirit in him, and I, I feel like we were only scratching the surface. You know, I, I was looking forward to doing more with him and working on something else with him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's really an amazing soundtrack. I think it's one, especially among all the other amazing stuff that he's done, that that will definitely be be remembered, um, and especially contributes to the whole atmosphere and, and tone of of the film. It's an amazing piece of work. Yeah. I, uh, I'm, uh, I feel really honored to have it in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but what, what's so? What's next for you? What? What? How do you? Where do you go after after Mandy? Because it's so it's so out there. It, it does so much in the space of two hours. Where Where are you going to go next? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. You know, um, th- th- this film and Black Rainbow are, are like companion pieces for me, and mm-hmm. I feel like they were both sort of dealing with the same. They both sort of were born from the same place in my life and from the same kind of emotional uh, landscape so yeah I I have a lot of ideas of different things I want to do I, I, but uh, I'm not sure what, you know I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for one of those things to kind of stand up and be and grab me and be like the I'm the one that you're, mm-hmm. that you're gonna do, you know. Cool. Well, I, whatever it ends up being, I can't wait to see it. Uh, Panos Kosmatos, thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. It's been a pleasure. Okay, so that was Ben Travis and Panos Kosmatos, and uh, Mandy, of course, is out as I said on Monday, October 29th on DVD and digital download. I believe is what the kids say as well. Oh. How exciting! Let's talk about movie news. Movie news is what's on our minds. Helen, hi. What's hi. Up I'd, what's I'd like, if you if you don't mind, I'd like to give the remake sigh. <sighs> because Disney are apparently planning to reboot the Pirates of the Caribbean series. Hey, what? You can see it's, why it's been five minutes since it made I another. Just, I just, I mean, come on, people. You know, it worked because it was fresh and different and something we hadn't seen in about a million years at that point. And 
well, at least since Cutthroat Island. And now we've seen a lot of it. And uh, we're even trying to watch black sales right now on Amazon, personally. And I just... Um... Anyway, so I'm sure it'll be wonderful. Um, I genuinely, I'm sure it'll be fun, but, you know, they've got Deadpool writers, Paul Wernick and Rhett Reese um, in talks to work yes. on the script, uh, obviously taking it over from Elliot and Rossio. It, uh, presumably they're trying to move away from the very expensive star of the series to date, Johnny Depp, uh, one would imagine. I don't know. Jerry yeah. Bruckheimer is still producing. Uh, this is very early days, so there's every chance it might not happen, but this is apparently in consideration at the moment uh, as a thing. Yeah, I think I think you're right. This is a this is not a soft reboot necessarily of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, more as a sort of a, a, a way to to take Captain Jack off center stage and out of the spotlight. And doesn't necessarily mean he won't be in it, but that's that franchise has for a long time, I think, been in need of some new blood and a new lead character. And I and obviously there's a lot of people have issues with Johnny Depp. Uh, off screen now as well so I think that might have contributed a lot to the, the diminished box office shall we say mm. uh, I think it was just just 794 million around the world uh, for the last one which is either called Salazar's Revenge or Dead Men Tell No Tales depending on where you uh, you live Dead Men Tell No Tales is a much better title but hey ho I thought they would have left this one for a few years but going back in is there an appetite really what do you guys think uh, I have to admit I missed the last the last one you didn't see uh, it at all I think it was a bit of fatigue with the whole franchise, I don't know where it's going, and I felt like I could see everything I needed to see from from the franchise. So I'm not entirely sure why they're thinking we can do something different because they clearly, I think they were running out of steam or just kind of re rehashing old ideas. So unless they've got a completely brand new, they're going to go on dark with it. Maybe or that seems to be the common mm. trend with films to kind of make it a bit more serious, a bit more adult. Can I heave the "it's going dark" sign? <laughs> <laughs> I d- yeah, I mean, they might. Um, I, I would I say what I'd like to see if they were going to reboot it and if I had to. Um, I would maybe like to see a move away from the... Pirates. Well, a little bit, yeah. Away from the endless, tricksy, back and forth, crossing, triple cross, double cross, quadruple cross that the films descended into because it just got so confusing and tiresome to keep up with. Um, may, but if it was just like some pirates trying to outrun the navy and find some treasure, like just a straight ahead sort of mm. sailing adventure, that kind of thing might be if fun. It, if it was a little bit like Game of Thrones in that kind of epic journey, it is in that style, that'd be quite cool. That could be interesting. We were talking about this in the office because the thing about Pirates of the Caribbean is it's not like it's based on some beloved historic IP. It's mm. It's based on a fairground ride. You know, so they've got literally free reign to do anything. It's just they, about pirates. It's, it's about just pirates. pirates in the Caribbean. Like, that's all it needs to be about, really. You don't have to have Jack Sparrow or any no. of these characters. You can just be creative and go with it. It's so they could start with a completely clean slate and have something really fun and, you know, capture the sort of spirit of the original, which is really the only genuinely good film in the franchise, I would, I would wager. Um, that's a bold statement. It's a bold um, statement. Yeah, I'm kind of with that. But it, it, I, we gave the first one five, right? And the rest were somewhere on three. We did. I think, I think two and three. three. I think Gore Verbinski's the, the real magician here in a way. I mean, and he was involved with four, which were Rob Marshall, and five, which was Joachim Ronin and Espen oh, Sandberg. Well done. Wow. Very good. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I just think Verbinski brought some, some real visual flair mm. to two and mm. three, which are bonkers, but... 
Yeah, not as good as the first. And one. I do think that um, Elliot and Rossio's stories—they they saw Captain Jack very much as a as a sort of Figaro character, so a sort of um, trickster character, and that was the the archetype they were going for. And when it worked, it worked brilliantly. But it, if everybody was a trickster, which is essentially this the point we got to by the third film. It, it just got confusing, I find. And so I feel like if you're going to have a trickster, that's fine, but then you need some straight arrows for him to trick, or her. Uh, and, and there were no straight arrows anymore. Everybody was bent, as it were. So yeah, it's a thing. It is a thing, mm. but until it becomes more of a solid thing... Then I won't despair too much. Precisely. Yeah. Uh, although they're good writers. Yeah. And we shall see. We shall see. Uh, anything else? Um, there was a new trailer today for a film called Cold Pursuits, um, I don't know if you've heard about this. So there was a film in 2014 called In Order of Disappearance. Mm-hmm. It was directed by uh, Hans Petter Molland. Uh, and he's now directing a remake of his own film. Uh, and this it's an English language remake. So the original film had Stellan Skarsgård playing Nils Dickman, who goes on revenge for the death of his son. And Liam Neeson is playing Nels Coxman. Really? <laughs> I'm not making this up. So, given the Nils rumours about Big Liam, <laughs> Nels Coxman. Pretty much on the nose. <laughs> and by nose, I mean the one that is Thank in... you. You can see it, but, but Chris is genuinely wiggling his eyebrows right now. <laughs> Why is he staring at me again? This is... <laughs> There's just a lot to unpack in that name, isn't there? There's a lot to... They might as well just call them... Neil's the tripod <laughs> and be done with it. So yeah, it, from the, the looks of the trailer, it's another Liam Neeson, you know, goes on the rampage sort of movie, but maybe a bit lighter. And also, he's in a snowplow. Um, <laughs> he's got a very particular set of snowplow skills. <laughs> that name again is is Mister <laughs> Mister Coxman. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> oh wow! All right. Yep. <laughs> wow, okay. He's also got uh, another film of his was announced today, mm. um, Normal People, which is like yes. at the other end of the Liam Neeson spectrum. <laughs> Chris is still laughing at Mr. Coxman. <laughs> I'm just laughing at the idea of... Oh, well, this is fine. A Mr. Plough film. <laughs> Mr. Mis- <laughs> Liam Neeson is Mr. Plough. I will find you. <laughs> I will plough you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> 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 So that's Cold Pursuit. Is this a film that used to be known as Hard Powder? Is that a different film? It might have been, yeah. What? Yeah, it might have been called Hard Powder at one point, I think. I'll look this up. Yeah. Yeah, no, I actually remember seeing that. Yeah. Cold Pursuit. So Normal People. And Normal People with uh, Leslie Manville. He's starring in... Yeah. uh, Which... um, Looks very un Liam Neeson, yeah. at least well, un, unlike his un, more recent, yeah, unmodern Liam Neeson output. Um, yeah, it's it's so it's basically they are an absolutely, as the title suggests, normal uh, couple uh, mm-hmm. who don't go on rampages of revenge uh, typically, uh, and love each other and have built a life together over many many years. And then she gets a diagnosis, I think, of breast cancer, and it's mm-hmm. how that affects their relationship and their lives. So that looks to be more getting in touch with his acting ability than his, you know. Are you saying that he's not acting in no, these other films? No, I'm saying that he's 
spending more time in those other films between acting stints, okay. kicking ass and taking names. Uh, yeah, very excited about Normal People. It's directed by Lisa Barros-Dessar and Glenn Leyburn, who directed Good Vibrations, which came out a few years ago. And they're Northern Irish, so fair play to them. How's, how's, your, how's your mother? All that sort of stuff. Whatever. Stick, how's, stick how's, an how's eye, It's been so long since I've been back home that I've wow. forgotten what people say over there. You need some soda bread stat. I really do. I need some feed of bread. Is that what people say in Northern Ireland? How's your mother? How's, how's your mother? How's no, your mother? That's what Marky Mark says. No. <laughs> yeah. say, say hello to your mother for me there and I. So, so it is. That was um, the worst impression. Or, 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 uh, <laughs> that's a terrible Mark Wahlberg impression. What else do we do? Keep her lit. Keep her lit? Keep her lit. What about you there, wee man? Keep her lit. Stick an eye. Keep her lit. <laughs> what? As in like lit, like the, you know, BuzzFeed. Uh, it's sort of like uh, no more... Oh, that's want to stay really lit. It's more like keep the fire within you burning oh. bright. Oh, oh, that's how I like to think of it anyway. Yeah. I don't think that's what it means. Do you ever hear this one? My mum used to, my mum used to say this to me all the time. Your your head's a Marley. You oh yeah, my mum said that to me. Your head's a Marley. Marley. Your head's a Marley. Never understood what that meant. Your head's your Marley. head's what like yeah. Bob Marley? I don't know Jacob Marley. It, I, I believe it comes from marble. It suggests that your head is solid glass and has <laughs> nothing of worth in it. I'll knock your melt in. You heard that one? No, but I have heard I'll mushroom your mush. <laughs> I mean, I'm just hungry now. This is, oh uh, my god. All right, so that's enough of those Northern Irish shenanigans. Anything else happening in the world of movie news? Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of things, actually. Um, do you want to do yours first? Uh, yeah, well... Uh, Did only got... bring anything, by the way? No, mm. he seems to have come empty-handed to his own party. I, we can give to you honest, something. I've noticed that he's been slacking off the last few weeks. <laughs> I, I checked out two months ago. <laughs> <laughs> I checked out five years ago. I maybe. haven't been in here. <laughs> John. Uh, I do have some sexy uh, release date news. Um, we all get excited Four. about release date changes, don't we? Strap in the slate. Just that Wonder Woman has been delayed by, no. I believe, seven months. No! Uh, it was due to be released, I think, in November of 2019. And it's now in June 2020. You have won a prize. Um, and uh, <clears throat> Warner Brothers are saying that they... they this, Puts the movie where it belongs in the original sort of summer release date of the, of the original. Mm. I'm sure it has nothing to do with the fact that Star Wars is out uh, in, <laughs> around Christmas time, 2019. That's it probably completely doesn't, irrelevant. Honestly, these things, movies burn themselves out now within four or five weeks. Yeah. So Wonder Woman would have been, I guess, would have made all this money Star by, Wars by is that December. point. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. This is strange. Obviously, this is also so they can make the movie as good as it can possibly be. Sure. Well, yeah, it's been a long shoot for that one, I hear. Mm. I don't have any inside information. Um, but I believe it's been quite a long shoot and it's uh, it sounds like there's quite a lot of moving parts. So. Yeah. And if I were yeah. to guess, I'd say that they'd probably be filming until December. But Yeah, but I'm... I don't know. That's coming completely out of thin air. We I don't, don't know. know for sure. No. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff to, to, uh, to do with the special effects. They have to fix Chris Pine's face. For one thing, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, it's it's too beautiful. It actually breaks screens. They have yes. to tone him down. <laughs> it really does. They have to do something about Gal Gadot's face as well. It's just, uh, I mean, who wants to look at those two for two oh, hours? Just nightmare. And the other interesting thing about this is it uh, it goes into the slot that the six billion dollar man once had. Uh, this Mark Wahlberg's remake of the Six Million Dollar Man TV Say show. Say hi to your mother for me. There he is again. <laughs> uh, and this is. So that six billion dollar man now doesn't have a release date, um, which I mean, has it started shooting? Doesn't have a director. Doesn't have anything. Okay, well, that's... so all it has is Marky Mark. 
perhaps that... Does it need anything else? (laughs) And to be fair, Mark has a a pretty tight schedule. You know, he hasn't got time to fit um, (laughs) fit a film into his, like, three showers. Precisely. Nowhere on that incredible schedule of his did it say, film six million dollar man. (laughs) Yeah. Perhaps between opening mail and spending time with family, whatever whatever that was. He has like three, four hour showers <laughs> per day. <laughs> he's, he hasn't got time to be a film Does star. he really smell that much? Is that a, well, he's just, is he's, this something he's he has to work out a lot, you know? Yeah. A lot of workout. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Is that what yeah. we do? And lots of, is that what we uh, actors do? We um, actors? We actors. Yeah, we're actors. What are you talking we, about? We're actors. Why are you, you've lost your mind. What are you doing? He doesn't give a shit anymore. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> Genuinely. Peace. <laughs> yeah, I'll do my job at the end. Yeah, this is really expensive equipment that we don't own. So please, yeah, please, fuck please it. Do. Do it. Go for it. Go for it. Uh, what do you mean, we actors? Oh, well, well, I've been in a film. Really? And so I, I saw Chris was in one recently. Well, recently. Not at all. <laughs> no. I was watching it recently yeah. and you came up in Hostel. Was it Hostel 2? Hostel Part 2, yeah. Let's rewind to your film. My film? Mm. Which, uh, the new Johnny English 3. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although I can't, I'm not actually in it. Oh. No, they cut me out. Oh. Well. So, I too, my friend, have felt the sting of the cutting room scissors. <laughs> I was meant to be in, for the well, the first Hostel. And then Nick and I were in a, in a scene in Blitz, and uh, we were cut. We were <laughs> we were playing journalists, and neither of us had any idea what we were doing. <laughs> so we have to what point at, and then ask this person something. Oh God! Uh, and they cut that scene entirely. So and now he's in Jurassic World. Edmund, he's he's going places. Yeah, he bounced back. <laughs> I mean, needless to say, he His had the last laugh. Flown. Where is Nick? I think he's currently driving barefoot to Dundee. <laughs> Eating loads of Toblerone. No one's seen him for ages. Uh, I believe he is around at some point. Well, that's exciting news, isn't it? Yeah. Tell you what's not exciting now. And this is uh, this genuinely surprised me. So last week we talked about how Netflix had cancelled Iron Fist. There's going to be no Iron Fist season three. And everyone kind of went, yeah, all right, mm. fair enough. Because I don't think we'd watch the second season. Those who had said it was better, but clearly not enough people watched season two. And what surprised me this week is that Netflix then also went on to cancel Luke Cage. Mm-hmm. And they said that, the, so it looked like a season three renewal order for Luke Cage was a formality. And then in a, something like a 48-hour period, discussions between Marvel and Netflix, the creative differences, that old chestnut, went in completely different directions. And so they decided that it was best just to pull the plug. Now... Yeah. What do you think about that? And do you think we've seen the last of Luke Cage? One theory, and I think there may be something to this, is that Marvel and Disney are cleaning house and they're going to bring these characters back. They're launching their streaming service next year. They've got the Mandalorian in there and they've already announced there's going to be some Marvel content in there with Loki and Scarlet Witch limited uh, series as well. So it would make sense for them. Why would they want to see some of their characters on another network slash streaming giant so they'd be bringing them back and maybe doing a heroes for hire type thing yeah i mean this is looking like the the golden age of being able to see most things without signing up for millions of different services is coming to Mm -hmm. an end um which is a bummer It, it does feel uh like more of a business decision than anything else i feel like if disney didn't have this new streaming service that they're about to unleash on the world's that it wouldn't have been the same decision. Mm. I think, you know, 
the the Marvel Netflix shows a sort of mo- moderate quality, I think. But I think I've, I haven't seen the the new series of Luke Cage, but I've heard it's 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 pretty decent. It's got its moments, um, and I think it just seems like. Disney are, are just sort of consolidating their assets, aren't they? Just so they've got a really powerful offering when they launch this new streaming service next year. Some people have been speculating that the it'll follow what happened in the comics where the Iron Fist and, and Luke Cage comics weren't selling that well, so they just teamed them up to make a Heroes for Hire you know, duo. And, and so that maybe yeah. there, there might be one season where they they finish those stories in a sort of team-up season, which which... Could be cool. Yeah. Yeah, they were much better together in the Defenders. Exactly, than, than, yeah. Certainly yeah. than both, Iron Fist Both those characters are kind of a little bit, you know, they feel a little bit second tier compared to Daredevil. How and, dare you? Yeah, how, a little bit. How I, I, I mean, Iron Fist in particular. Um, but, but, but together, I feel like perhaps there's, there's something a bit more compelling there. Well, I, I think, honestly, we'll only know for sure once we find out the fate of the other shows. There are still three in play at the moment. So there's Daredevil, Jessica Jones, and The Punisher. And there's been no talk about Punisher Season 2, but they can just you know, sometimes just drop these things and go, here you go, we've been filming it in secret. But I don't know, it does feel a little bit to me like just watch the space. But it does feel a kind of ruthless side to Netflix. I didn't think that they really had. Mm. You know, I always had this this idea of Netflix as being this sort of <laughs> b- benevolent home for, for TV shows that... Once you get a show with Netflix, you're set up for life and you have multiple seasons and everything's cool. But um, but they can't keep up that pace of programming. It's no, they crazy. can't. They really can't. Um, just uh, speaking of Disney, um, big changes in the Disney Animation and Pixar division as Ed Catmull has announced that he's stepping down as president of both. Um, he's the kind of Pixar finder who isn't as talked about as the other two. But he is an absolutely crucial figure. He's um, He's a technological genius first of all but also he's always had an interest in story like he gets credit for the tech side of things mm-hmm. um, but maybe not enough for his creativity and his um his artistic ability i think as well um he did i believe and i'm sure people will write me in and tell me otherwise if i'm wrong he basically invented texture mapping which is basically wrapping a texture around yeah. a sort of wire shape in, uh, and it's a key to yeah. computer it's, graphics, basically. Yeah, CGI, it's, the, yeah. it's, it's, the most, the, it's it, one of the most important things you, yeah. you can do. So, yeah. and, and, and that's basically Ed Catmull um, yeah. early on in his career. And that was, you know, and then he teamed up, obviously, with John Lester. And then they, um, it, at the Lucasfilm Computer Division, yep. moved on to for, find Pixar. And he's led them to astonishing success ever since. Um, so, yeah, he's stepping down. He'll serve in an advisory role until the middle of next year, stepping down at the end of this year. And uh, yeah, we'll be massively missed. I think. What's he doing now? Is he moving on? Sorry, he's just retiring, or is I he... think he's just, uh, as far as I know, he's just stepping down. But just he he might knows. be retiring. Uh, uh, yeah. They're calling it retiring. So okay, let's assume so. I think he's probably hit his target in his HQ movie <laughs> retirement fund. Uh, <laughs> I would his, I would say so. I would yeah. hope so. His book, by the way, is a very very good uh, mm. insight into how you build a company like Pixar and still manage to pay more than lip service to creativity. It's called Creativity Inc., Creativity Incorporated, and it's available right now. Yeah, it's wonderful. I might as well do another plug. Uh, I interviewed him a few years ago when he came in to talk about the book for the Apple Meet the Filmmakers series. So if you Google that, um, you, you can check it out as a, as a podcast as well. He's a fascinating guy. So, mm. yeah, happy retirement, sir. Mm. But going back very, very quickly, the idea of Netflix, Guillermo del Toro has announced his first directorial project, Post winning all those gold guys for The Shape of Water, and it is a stop motion animated version of Pinocchio. 
Here for it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm genuinely, sign, sign me up. And also. your nose is staying resolutely in place, so I yeah. know that you're telling the truth. There we go. There you go. Uh, what do we think? Uh, I'm excited by it. Very um, excited. Yeah. yeah. It, it, did they showed a picture of it, right? The actual puppetry. Is that right? Or my I didn't see it, up? but yeah, quite possible. I might be making that up, but um, from what I saw, it, it looked quite cool. But the fact is, I love his, his his style. is always mm. so detailed and uh, so unique. So to see him take on something like this is going to be quite a, a cool experience. Um, mm. Yeah, and I heard that it's set in Italy in the 1930s, so it will show the sort of rise of fascism in the background. Which so there'll be a you know it'll be a very dark take on the tale, which yeah, you know you, we know he can handle really well. So I went on a Super Disney excited. press trip to Italy a few years ago to visit the house where um, where Pinocchio was written. It was cool. Oh. It was a very nice house. They had like pineapple and a stick for us to eat, which was good, like pineapples and cheese, little hors d'oeuvres. It was really nice. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't know why that's the detail that's, that sticks out. That's but the it important is. part <laughs> of that anecdote, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but no, there's a bit like genuinely, there's so much in the tale of Pinocchio and in his adventures yeah. that you could, that Guillermo could knock out of the park. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. really excited to see what he, what he does. I'm sure this has been mentioned before in dispatches in terms yeah. of, you know, the myriad projects that he's been attached to over the years. There were other, there were definitely, I'm sure there were. Yeah. There were definitely other Guillermo Pinocchio yeah. rumours. There have been Pinocchio rumours definitely in the past. I know Robert Downey Jr. was attached once mm-hmm. to play Geppetto, I think, but not mm-hmm. Pinocchio. And I don't think that was with uh, Guillermo directing. But this is uh, really interesting stuff and stop motion as well. Uh, this thing's going to be freaky. And uh, as Helen said, we are here for it. <clears throat> Any other points of business? Uh, just another little Netflix thing. There was a f- the first trailer for Bird Box, which oh, is yes. the uh, new thriller from director Suzanne uh, Beer, the, the Danish director who did The Night Manager. Um, and this is an adaptation of a book of the same name. And it's got Sandra Bullock and Travante Rhodes, John Malkovich, Sarah Paulson. Really, really good cast. It's a really cool concept. It's basically like a quiet place, but with eyes. Yes. So, Every, but we I should mean, also point out... That's that also this, a reductive way of wait, describing yeah. it. No, that it's been in production... It was in production it, before Quiet yes, Place the, was the book was written before Quiet Place. So, you know, it's not like a jumping on the success of Quiet Place or anything. But it, but it is a sort of sensory, apocalyptic horror thriller, let's say. And just finally, uh, Jean-Marc Vallée is planning to direct yes. a John Lennon and Yoko Ono film... Um, so it's going to be sort of about their relationship when they met in the 60s when she was a conceptual artist and he was John Lennon and how they met and uh, everything else. So that's going to be fascinating, I think. But good luck with the casting of that one. Jeez. Aaron Taylor Johnson. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and he's done it once. He's done it once and he's probably the right age now to play Lennon. At the, at, I think he is. I think he's probably exactly the same age as Lennon was when he first met Yoko Ono. So it, it absolutely works for me. He can do the accent. The interesting thing about this is that Yoko Ono co-wrote the script with Anthony McCartan, mm-hmm. who also wrote the script for this week's Bohemian Rhapsody. Now, I'm not saying anything yet until we get the reviews section of the show, but there could be peril in uh, a biopic in which surviving people are actively involved. Perhaps with, so. With Let's discuss that in just a moment. Wait, we Anthony, discuss it. Anthony McCartan? Mm-hmm. I didn't... Of Anton Deck? No, that's Ant McPartland. Right, got you. Okay, fine. Sorry, move on. Yep. <laughs> okay, wow, okay. Um, George Miller. Oh, yes. George Miller has announced his next film, which is just very exciting. Uh, it's not a new Mad Max movie. Um, I think that might still be tied up in legal wranglings. There's a big dispute mm-hmm. between uh, Miller and, and 
Warner Brothers, but this is a new film called 3,000 Years of Longing, um, which is pretty much all we know about it, um, other than it's an original story, unlike he's, he's made before, and something of an epic. Mm. So that's... Yeah, some say it involves a genie. Uh, it's also known as, as Jin, D-G-I-N-N. So I'm hoping it's a stealth Wishmaster remake. <laughs> Is I'm that hoping what it's you based, wish? I'm hoping it's based on that one episode of Supernatural with the Jin. It's always with you, the Supernatural, always with you, the Winchesters and their nipples. Helen. <laughs> always with you, their nipples. What? I don't know. You found my fan fiction. <laughs> oh, no. Yes, my, my Winchester fan fiction would be amazing. I love you, Sam or Dean, said <laughs> Dean or Sam. It's really hard to tell. Wow. Dean or Sam's face uh, grew closer to Sam or Dean's. <laughs> Together they pressed They pressed their both face against each other. Does that kind of work? Does that... No. Anyone getting a little bit hot in the collar with that? No. All right, time now for our second guest this week, Rami... Why did I say it like that? <laughs> <laughs> Time now for our second guest this week. Rami Malek is the star of iRobot. No, he's not. <laughs> iRobot? What? iRobot. Where did that come from? Yeah, sorry. Time now for our second guest this week. Rami Malek is the star of Mr. Robot on that there television, but he is graduating to the big screen. He's playing Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen in this week's Bohemian Rhapsody. And uh, pretty damn good he is as well. Uh, he came into this very booth, sat in the very seat that Helen is in, and we had a chat about Bohemian Rhapsody, Freddie Mercury, and, uh, well, that was pretty much it. But do, 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 do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the star of Bohemian Rhapsody, Rami Malek. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. But, uh, you know, London's your home now, isn't it? We've uh, claimed you as one of our own. It, it feels that way. I've, uh, I've just fallen in love with it here, every aspect of it. Um, Getting to shoot the film here and rehearse for it uh, in London was—it was a dream. It was a dream. Just a, obviously historic culture and uh, yep. one that I'm—I'm just fascinated by day in and day out. So, did you do the full tourist thing? Because I've lived in London now. I'm not—I'm not from London. I've lived here for 17 years, and I realized the other day I've never been to Buckingham Palace. I've never been to the Tower of London. I don't even think I've been to the British Museum. I am failing as a Londoner, but did you do all that, that tourist stuff initially? Uh, no. No, I did not. <laughs> I, I have been to the British Museum. Okay. I actually got to film in the British Museum once. We, okay. I, did, I did a scene from Night at the Museum in oh, the British Museum. Oh, And yes, uh, yes, yes. we, we uh, had it all, all to ourselves one night, which was magical. Got to spend some time with... Robin Williams staring at the Rosetta Stone. Pretty, yeah, pretty surreal experience. I can imagine it, it was. Yeah. Uh, walking around a huge empty museum at night. Yes, yeah. Do I guess exhibits... that's why they made a movie about it. Precisely. <laughs> Do the exhibits come to life? Or is... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. to your knowledge. Not to my knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> okay, excellent. They do in the film. That experience of knowing you could be playing Freddie Mercury, pretty daunting at first? Is it something that kept you awake at night, in, in a way? I would say so. I would say so. But fear fear is a great motivator. <laughs> uh, I Before this film was even greenlit by Fox, I thought, okay, I've been told that I have this role. I don't really know if it's you know ever going to get made. I mean, it was taking about 10 years to, to get made. Yeah. So I thought, 
you know, you can wait till it officially gets greenlit and jump in. You probably have a little bit of prep time or start immediately and let the ball roll however it's going to go. So I just I packed a bag and I flew myself to London and put myself up and asked uh, our wow. producers and Fox just to finance a little bit of the the uh the uh the musical aspects of preparation so they yeah. gave me they gave me some piano lessons and uh singing classes every day and i worked with a movement uh choreographer uh-huh. to figure out how he moved he's a very unique unique individual who who has a very specific articulation and mannerisms and uh it was it was quite fun uh, once once the stress of it wore off which mm. gradually it did the more <laughs> I, I i got to uh understand him and and do take all these classes and whatnot and i had a great dialect coach as well yeah uh so it was it was basically just training every day and every day uh that i got i got a little bit closer and felt like uh this I could actually possibly pull this off. <laughs> but training every day, uh, knowing, not knowing for sure that the movie's going to happen, that's yeah. a that's a heck of a as I think as they say in the states, a hail mary pass. It, it, yeah, <laughs> that's, we do that's, say that. Is that there? Have I used that in the correct context? Yes, yes, you did. <laughs> hey, yeah. There we got it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was that or. Uh, you, you know, I could walk away with with the feeling of knowing that I. I you know, I was ready, and the, you know, the offer didn't present itself. Or go in and uh, be on my back foot the entire time. And when you have to, the responsibility of honoring a uh, man who I think is—I think he's the greatest musician of all time. Uh, I really do. Wow. Ha- having spent this much time watching everything and studying every aspect of his life. He is, uh, he's just the most fascinating human being you could ever come across. What did you think about him going into this? It was, I actually, I sat down, uh, I flew out to Los Angeles to meet with Graham King and, and Dennis O'Sullivan about, uh, about Freddie, and we talked for six hours. And they, uh, by the end of it, they handed me a, a couple books and some DVDs, and uh, I, I turned back to them and said, well, you know, Good luck with uh, casting this. I'm sure you have some excellent choices. And, <laughs> and uh, Graham just looked at me. He's like, "No, no, it's you. It's you." <laughs> uh, so I, that was it. I just uh, I dove right in and started to make these uh, these discoveries of a man I didn't know enough about. Yeah. And, um, and you know, I, start, I found out he was born in Zanzibar. Mm-hmm. Went to school, uh, boarding school in India. Mm-hmm. His country was in the midst of a, rev- a revolution when he returned, and uh, it was, you know, he was quite a, a, a grown-up before he even made it to London. Mm. Didn't know his name was Farouk Bolsara. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many fascinating aspects that I could personally relate to. I mean, my my family. I am first generation American, and. Uh, so much of this film is about a man uh, searching for his identity and uh, and where he belongs, and uh, ultimately connecting with people who mm. feel the same way. And and that's what I think is this beautiful intrinsic connection he has with fans. Mm. And uh, 
from my perspective, I, I you know I had that sense growing up too, and I think that's what makes us a very universal story. There are other sides as well to Freddie, though. There, there was a capriciousness and a playfulness. I think you know, I think you could you could use the word genius to describe him, and he certainly behaved in a in a way that was very unconventional. Uh, certainly, especially early on when when the band when Queen were just starting off, and he always knew that I think that he was going to be a star and acted like it. Did you get a sense of that from talking to people who knew him, talking to the band, talking to his bandmates? Yeah, there is, yes, I did get a, I got a, some semblance of that. There's, there's obviously a capriciousness, as you say, and an audacity to him. Mm. You know, there's, there's a boldness that I think always existed. It was just about discovering it. I mean, you look at a guy who had an enormous set of teeth he tried to, you know tried to conceal throughout his life as a kid he was referred to as bucky mm-hmm. uh, not even farouk mm-hmm. or freddie mm-hmm. so underneath that is this brilliant artist who has a ve- very very loud personality and uh, and unique vision striving to overcome um, Quite a few obstacles. You get the you get to see those the, that intimate exploration of yeah. of who he was and what he was striving for. But yes, there was there's always always a showman in in that young man. I mean, even in boarding school, he'd be playing uh, playing the piano as often as he could and singing at the top of his lungs. His mom would say <laughs> that too, and his sister. Any chance uh, he got, <laughs> he'd be singing or playing the piano. And then, of course, you have. The voice, the Freddie Mercury voice. Yes, and uh, our our podcast crew. Occasionally, we go we go to karaoke, and occasionally yeah. someone will stick on, "Oh, don't stop me now," or "Somebody to love," or something like that. And you start singing, it and you think, "Oh, this is fine. This is I, I can handle this. This is good." And then he goes into a a place that you just go, "Oh no, what what the hell? That man had a, a one off of a voice, <laughs> and it's represented really really well in the film. And I believe a lot of it's you. Is that is that true? No, well. It is the most incredible voice that that I mean. Obviously, I'm going to be biased here, but <laughs> he's one I think uh, I think uh, that deserves my bias. And it is a one-off. I mean, if you look at the tribute concert after he passed, it took Elton and Axl Rose to uh, to hit the high and low notes together. It Good was point. it was an incredible range yeah. that only comes uh, along once every few generations. Yeah. So yes, in terms of that, that what I would say was my biggest concern going into this: how much I was going to have to sing. And I was, you know, I was told all through the course of it that what I had to do is get as close to whatever I could do to resemble him as possible, and that meant singing at the top of my lungs, take after take after take, every concert performance, and. Now Brian May and Roger Taylor have come in and worked Freddie's vocal into a, a huge chunk of this film, mm-hmm. uh, the majority of it, which uh, I think the the world will be very pleased by. <laughs> <laughs> but there are moments, there are moments in the film where you, you can tell it's you singing live. And it's not necessarily in the performance uh, sections uh, when, when Freddie's on stage, yeah. but there are moments when he's off stage and he's singing... Two people just singing, almost an impromptu singing. Right, that well, feels like it's you. There's a, there's an amalgamation of voices there. Okay, yeah. 
Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. So um, you've obviously there's there's quite a compendium of of Queen hits in the movie. Uh, is there anything that you didn't get to sing or perform that you were slightly disappointed about? There's no there's no flash, for example, in the in the film. There's no flash. There's no flash. There is. I mean, there was so much throughout uh, the film that. We, we, as as I grew to be the the fanatic that I am now, I call myself a queen fanatic. I kept you know coming in every day and saying, "Well, what about this? How can we incorporate this song? What about these moments?" One thing I did that I uh, did early on, which was really useful, is I took all of the songs that Freddie wrote uh, and wrote out his lyrics just to see what you know he was underneath everything because obviously the, that's coming straight from his soul. Yeah, yeah. So uh, in getting to know some of the less lesser-known Freddie Mercury songs, I kept saying, well, can we put this in? We, I think we should <laughs> use this here. But of course, yeah, of course, Flash. At one point, I said, we, we should move in between scenes with just Flash every time as a joke. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, that's a way to go. Flash! That, yeah, right? <laughs> in between every scene in the film. Well, that would be a different movie. You mentioned earlier on, I mean, you're clearly somebody who went into this very prepared and very determined to, to turn up on day one uh, knowing as much about Freddie and feeling as much of Freddie, I guess, as you possibly could. Now, does that, is that something you've always had through your career or does that come from maybe experiences growing up as an actor where you maybe you're, you're doing a day playing gig or something like that and maybe you haven't been as prepared as you would like? Um, and you think, well, I'm never doing that again. Well... No, I've never. I, do, I, I like to think that I've come uh, come prepared to every job. You don't I just, wing it. <laughs> I tr- I don't wing it. No, I, I find myself drawn to roles that would never allow for for winging to be an option. <laughs> I mean, they've. Yeah. I I enjoy playing very complicated individuals, and uh, it's not only doing justice to to Freddie. Uh, and honoring Freddie, but you know, there's a, a legacy there, and and people, uh, millions of people who have a relationship with him that respond to aspects of his life and his personality that they can connect with. So there's no option to to wing it when when you know something like that of this weight is on the mm. line, mm. and that goes for any role because um, if if Someone appreciates a role. They obviously connected to it in, in some way, and uh, I, I take that responsibility. Uh, uh, it, it's a heavy one for me. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, and and for me, as an actor, the uh, the preparation is one of my favorite parts of this gig. I love I love the moment to moment being in front of a camera and collaborating and never you know of course bringing spontaneity to to every moment but I think the greatest moments of spontaneity come when you, when you've done a, a substantial amount yeah. of homework when you have to free all of up. this stuff to to draw upon exactly. you know, it's just there at the back of your brain exactly and then you can just let loose and what better way to let loose on camera than by playing Freddie Mercury <laughs> you know there's something about you know, I I I you know try to uh kind of usually harness uh what I'm doing in front of a camera because I'm very aware how how well a camera picks up on every single nuance and emotion you're feeling and I'd say one 
thing I had to get used to with Freddie is how big and bombastic I could be in front of a camera. <laughs> and uh, I remember I remember Tom Hollander came up to me one day after we were shooting a scene and goes, are you always this loud? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, think about the character, Tom. <laughs> uh, no, I'm definitely not always this loud. That's amazing. Mm. I have to ask about uh, the... The, the the director change mm-hmm. on this movie. Obviously, you started out with Brian Singer. Brian left the project towards the end of production. Dexter Fletcher came in. Yeah. As an actor, what's that like? The crossover from director to director is that does that give you pause, or did you just take it? Uh, I think if it was earlier on, I would have had more pause. Uh, what what really worked for me and uh, the entire cast and crew, I think, is. Th- the subject matter prepared us because no, no one was out there kind of just, uh, um, you know, checking in and, and, and clocking in, I guess is the right phrase. Mm. But we all had done so much homework and came in so prepared. And then, I mean, obviously, we're playing a band and, and that kind of uh, relationship took over the, mm. these boys. And it... it began to influence every other aspect of the set. I mean, mm. we, this was a very, very tight-knit group, and we had a, a, a absolute legend in Tom Siegel, who is our, oh, yeah. Yeah. our DP, mm. uh, who, um, you know, continued this cohesive vision for the rest of the movie. And Graham King and Dennis O'Sullivan, our producers, were there every single day. Had Brian May, you know, to yeah. talk to throughout. So when Dexter came on, it was just just continuing what we were doing, and had a had a great time with Dex because he's obviously such a talented actor, and you know that that was another way of working with with a director who. Uh, um, communicates from a perspective of of having been an actor yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. still is was uh, was something that I found very helpful. So brilliant, uh, Rami. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, indeed, for your time. Uh, thank you, my pleasure. Okay, so that was Rami Malek, and let's now talk about the film in which he stars. It is Bohemian Rhapsody. It is the long in development biopic of Freddie Mercury and Queen, who I believe sold a few records or two over the years. <laughs> What did we make of this one? It is This is directed, interestingly enough, by Brian Singer. Now, of course, he was fired by Fox with just a few weeks to go on the production, but he gets full credit, despite the fact that Dexter Fletcher came in to finish the film off. Um, uh, so that's obviously... In the background. In the yep. background. Yep. But what do we make of the film? Well, um, so it is a very kind of straight-ahead biopic uh, I think you know there's the flashback from the key concert moments uh, through Freddie Mercury's life it's honestly like Walk Hard never happened but it's a fairly serviceable quick run through you know uh, Freddie Mercury in particular but Queen as a whole's kind of rise to fame as stadium rockers. I don't know, were they hair rock, stadium rock? One of those two. <laughs> both of those two, possibly. Um, they, given, they may have invented both. They may have. Uh, and, and in fairness, the, the film, is, I think, does quite a good job of explaining, you know, 
what was different about them, what was interesting about them and, and how they made themselves stand out and achieve the levels of success that they did. It's also really, really good on their live performances and getting some of the electricity of those across. And a lot of that is down to Rami Malek's fantastic performance as Freddie Mercury. I think he's he's absolutely wonderful. He is the, the key weapon in this film's um selling points, I don't know. Um but he is he's really, really good. And and otherwise it it does sometimes feel a little bit, you know, rock biopic one oh one. Um yeah. very much a trot through the sort of the famous moments and the sort of uh uh key eras that you think must have happened. The one thing I would say is that obviously uh, there was some controversy because the the first trailer focused a lot on Lucy Boynton's Mary Austin, who was at one point Freddie's girlfriend. I think they were they were engaged, mm-hmm. and then they obviously he was gay, and so they broke up. And so, but she did remain a close friend and confidant. And the the film's first trailer focused on her to such an extent that it seemed to be straight washing his entire life. Um, and she is still a big part of the film, as she was a big part of his life. The film makes no bones about the fact that he was gay um, and that he was uh, out and, you know, having a lot of rock star style fun with people. But mm-hmm. it also dwells on it so little <laughs> um, that it is rather sidelined. So it's a weird film because I felt like without actually lying about anything he did it would be hard to make less of it it feels like a film made by his friends who want you to think well of him at every stage in his life Mm. um and and that's fine but i think we can all love him even knowing he was difficult sometimes and even knowing he did some things that were you know hurtful to those around him and even knowing that he did things that were hurtful most of all to himself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and and I feel like the film downplays some of those elements to such an extent that it feels it still feels a little bit straightwashy even without actually technically being that it, it I felt it, it it was very coy about that side of his mm. not just that side of his life but other things as well I mean there's there's it's such a PG thirteen, so such a sanitized version of Mercury's life. Because let's be honest, it is Mercury's story. It's called Bohemian Rhapsody. And it's it's about Queen, but it's really about Freddie Mercury. And the other three guys are all fine. Everyone's good. Mm. One of them, Joseph Masello, the young kid uh, Tim from Jurassic Park. He plays John Deacon, the group's bass player. But yeah, group's yeah. bass player. And yeah, I didn't know that. What good. Really? Genuinely, yeah. It's like, what the hell? I didn't know until I saw the credits. It's a bit like my Toby Stevens epiphany from last week. Mm-hmm. I really should go into these movies, know more about who's <laughs> in them, but I like things to surprise me. You know, I thought the music obviously is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's great. You know, I like a lot of Queen stuff, so it's all good. But there's some really strange decisions in this film. I wanted to see if it was written by a guy called Cliff Notes because it just <laughs> felt like it was a quick glance at a Wikipedia page, feed it into Final Draft, screenplay. And that's that's the process behind it. And there's, I mean, there's an element of that. But I do, <clears throat> I did think it was quite charming at times. I thought the interaction in the band was sweet. Actually, uh, Gwilym mm. Lee is the is the yes, uh, also really important as Brian May. Very he's, good. He's just really likable, and that that kind of helped. I think the, the both the selling both the selling point and the problem of the film for me is that it feels very cozy. Like I came out of this thinking that's going to be a really big hit because. There's nothing to challenge, you know, your dad who has the best of Queen tape, which, as we all know, any tape left in a car for more than a fortnight turns into a best of Queen tape. But um, and, and leaving tapes in cars. Well, it's a good omens joke. People of are going to laugh, Chris. Of okay. Anyway, and you, had, and you had heard of summer before. 
<laughs> but um, but you know, you're you're kind of your nan who still listens to a Best of Queen CD then mm. is gonna is gonna find nothing to particularly upset her in this film. Mm. And on one side, that's good in that you know it's getting a wide audience to look at this film about a gay hero. And on the other hand, it's bad because it's not in any way challenging them or in any way sort of confronting them with any sort of you know rough corners or rough edges but you know it i think i think this would be a a, a decent size slash big hit mm. you know it could fill the greatest showman gap in people's lives yeah i think just because of the effectiveness of the sort of the live bits the music mm. itself uh and rami malik i think that is going to carry it mm. through to that sort of audience yeah. um but uh but yeah whether it does justice to Queen's story that's that's a whole other discussion I think there are um, I was talking to Terry the other day she said the BBC4 documentary on Freddie Mercury is still the one to go for if you want to know more about mm-hmm. him as a person um, but yeah we give it three stars three stars which as we always say on the podcast is a Queen Amendation <laughs> do we say that? do we? we don't say that okay. a rec- Queen Amendation no just mm. recommendation uh, three stars then for Bohemian Rhapsody and uh Next, we'll move on to the directorial debut, on the big screen at least, of Garth Marenghi himself, Matthew Holness. And if you haven't seen Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, I strongly urge you to do so. It is one of the greatest yes. six episodes, half-hour comedies uh, produced in the last 25 years in this country. It is absolutely sublime. Seek it out. Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. I won't say anything else. Just see it, love yeah. it, laugh. It's on uh, Channel 4 YouTube. Actually. Is it on Channel I think 4 YouTube? I, I don't know if they released all the episodes, but they yeah. just had released uh, some clips from it because I know he's been tweeting them going, they've got the wrong aspect ratio. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> really? Yeah. They've, Amazing. They've, they've, they've corrected it and he's not very happy. So uh, Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we did in the room this week on the podcast for Matthew Holness. Uh, I'm hoping that we can find time down the, the next few weeks to get him in because he's a, a fascinating guy really smart really knows his onions uh, but this is Possum this is his directorial debut and the reason I mentioned Garth Marenghi's Dark Place is because I think you might watch that and then think oh this is going to be a chuckle fest mm. this is going to be a tongue in his cheek ironic horror and it ain't no John Nugent no it's not no it's a really dark place you might say <laughs> it goes to a genuine dark place here yeah it's 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 interesting isn't it i i can't remember an example of somebody who's parodied a genre only to make a serious entry in that genre and it's i think it's really impressive it's it's a very dark film there's nothing funny about it at all it's very unsettling it's ostensibly i guess the plot is you you it's set in this very english t- little town um, and we overhear on the news, sort of in the background, that a 14-year-old boy has gone missing. And it's sort of unclear what's happened to him. Uh, so we follow this man, Philip, uh, played by Sean Harris, who, and in, in, across the film, it's not quite clear what's happened to this missing boy and whether Philip is involved in some way. Uh, it's shot in a very sort of unconventional way. The editing is quite sort of dreamlike it's never quite clear what's what's real and what's not mm-hmm. um and then the possum of the title is this this gruesome sort of spider-like puppet that he keeps in a bag that philip keeps in a bag but also maybe it's not a puppet maybe it's alive <laughs> who knows so it's it's i i i thought it was really impressive it's kind of the perfect role for someone like sean harris i always thought he was um he looked slightly out of place in a big hollywood blockbuster uh, but he looks completely in place. He's perfect in this in film. This film. He's, he's got he's got a great face for horror. Uh, he's sort of a mixture of vulnerable and also 
kind of creepy and I, I, not sure whether I think to his trust voice him. works really well in this yes, as well. Yeah. Because it's kind of got that it's not particularly smooth, it's kind of got that gritty kind of back of the throat kind of but a little bit high pitched and mm. it, it really works in giving you that sense of unease. Mm. Uh, and if the whole film you have unease, there's no real sense of breaking out from that. You once you're in, you're in. Uh you don't know where it's gonna go. You've got this really beautiful poetry that goes through it as well that takes you along. Uh, especially with the music as well, by mm. the Radiophonic, uh, Radiophonic Workshop, yes. which is apparently their first feature film they've worked on, and they've been going since, what, 1950s, I think, mm-hmm. and they just normally do Doctor Who sounds. Um, so this is their first kind of foray into going into this um, avenue, and it, it works so well. I mean, the, the, it adds to the, the creepy vibe, and the, the puppet you mentioned is uh, it's, it's very, very scary mm. when you look at it. And when you go to to see it, you think, oh god, this is this is you don't want to see any more of it. Um, and Matthew Holness is very good at giving those kind of short, slight, uh, dark effects to it, where you kind of see it in the corner creeping along, and then yes. it's got a little bit of stop motion to it. Um, and and it, it's, it's very scary <laughs> in yeah. that sense. Uh, I mean, the film is not scary itself; it's just creepy. Um, but there's no like jump horror moments no, there. It's, no, it's much and, more sort of slow builds. And you've got a, a supporting. Uh, you've got Alan. Armstrong playing Morris, yes, and his uh, his, his performance is phenomenal. Um, yeah, it, it felt so real and again just very slimy character. Yeah, very he dirty just sort of just cackles a, and yeah, sitting there with his cigarette, eating his food, and in this kind of dark, dingy place. And mm. uh, the production design on this is is, is phenomenal. Yeah, um, he's obviously very influenced by that sort of nineteen seventies British folk horror. So, There's yeah. a very like sort of bleak wasteland vision of of England. I mean, I think it's set in East Anglia. Everything is grey and grim and brown. Yeah, you got the brown and the green. Is... And, uh, you know, the house they live in is this sort of vision of squalor and you can see the the sort of tobacco stains on his yeah. fingers. And So there's there's all these sort of very subtle touches of just unease and dread and... It, 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 you leave the cinema just feeling a bit weird. Don't you need you? a shower a little bit. You feel a bit, <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, it has, it, it's a feast of the senses. It'll tackle all the mm. senses. Uh, not a good feast in that sense, but I, I really enjoyed the film. Um, and it's, it's kind of got that uh, indie horror, which it, I think more British films need to, we need more of this kind of thing. Yeah. It, it was, I, it's so sort of structurally, it's sort of just, it doesn't really have like a three act way of. It doesn't really have a three act structure. It just sort of things happen. So I, I struggled at times to get a bit of purchase on it, if you know what I mean. It's so it's so sort of dreamlike. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't quite go the, the direction you go. But it, but in terms of a mood piece, in terms of atmosphere, yeah, it, it. <laughs> it kind of knocks your socks off. Fantastic. Uh, so Matthew Holness is one of the few people who's made more films than he's watched. <laughs> <laughs> no, Blood. 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 And bits of sick. <laughs> uh, four stars then for Possum, which sounds oh, chilly. I mean, just put Sean Harris in a movie and I'm... The man's <laughs> terrifying. Mm. Absolutely terrifying. He may well be the guest on our very last episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, st- I'm not sure I can watch this so soon after The Haunting of Hill House. I might need a... A moment or two longer to <laughs> piece myself back together. This doesn't have Mikhail Hausman to uh, to guide you through with no, his swoonsome good looks. He is swoony. <laughs> <laughs> Helen's scribbling Mrs. O'Hara Hausman on, on, <laughs> on her A4 binder there. Hang on, just have to draw a heart around it. One sec. <laughs> Mrs. Sam or Dean Winchester. <laughs> Come on, you know the answer to that one. No, I don't. you don't. <laughs> Sam. 
Epstein. <laughs> or <laughs> both. <laughs> Ollie, was this your last film as a, as an empire? Whatever uh, it is you do. <laughs> what do I do? What I have no what idea. Do you do? No what clue. do you do? What was the last film I saw? Um, I think it might have been, actually. Yeah? Could well have been. Um, what a way to go out. That's a cracker. Yeah. Four stars in for Possum. Good stuff. Well done, everybody. Next up, very, very quickly, we have An Evening with Beverly Loughlin, which is the follow-up to The Greasy Strangler from British director Jim Hosking. Mm. And if you saw The Greasy Strangler, then, you Needs know... Needs more grease. Then, you know, no. I'm, I'm <laughs> more if you saw grease. The Greasy Strangler, I'm sorry. We're trying to set up a support group of some sort. Um, it was amazing, but also I'm, I still feel a little bit sick thinking about it. All it needed was Sean Harris, just to put oh, it right God. over the top. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm, The Greasy Strangler, I completely loved. I think that was something that the Empire Office kind of championed a little bit when it came out. It, it's such a strange cult film uh, full of non-actors. You know, it's the only film I've seen that has a naked septuagenarian greased up strangling people until their eyes pop out. You know, that's... Really? You haven't seen all the others? I I can't say that I have. I said blank spot in my... That's actually the next episode of the ranking. <laughs> <laughs> I've already got the greasy strangler number eight. So. <laughs> uh, this is slightly different. It's still weird. It's still completely, absolutely bonkers. But he's got um, mainstream, hasn't he? He's got like people in it that you would recognise. He, he's got actual telly. actors, yeah. yeah. He's got people you might have heard of. Um, so you've got Aubrey Plaza, who plays Lulu Danger. There's some really great <laughs> character names, by the way. Emil Hirsch is uh, her husband, Shane Danger. That's amazing. Um, you're already laughing. This I'm is already great. on board. I hope it's a comedy. Craig, Craig Robinson <laughs> is the title character, Beverly Loughlin, um, which is, you know, funny that he's got a, a girl's name. Jermaine Clement plays Colin Keith Threadner. Um, and That's Matt, less funny than the other ones, I'll be honest. Matt Barry, this is the, this is the kicker. This okay. is the kicker. Matt Barry plays Rodney von Donkensteiger. I mean, that's that's strong. <laughs> that's good, isn't that it? Is Come on, that's good. Strong. But yeah, so it's it's if if the Greasy Strangler, Kim Newman in his review says uh, the Greasy Strangler was more of a gross-out serial killer horror movie, and this is kind of a, a mutant film noir powered by obsessive de- desire, as he puts it, which I think is a very good way of putting it. It's less culty. It's, it's there's less grease. There's less gross-out stuff. Um, it's still fucking weird like it's really <laughs> really strange uh and it's set in a very sort of specific world i really love the sort of aesthetic that they have it's just this sort of you know slightly strange 70s 80s people have very bad hair bad facial hair there are people who you know look like they sh- shouldn't usually be on a cinema screen who are on a cinema screen but it, it, it's essentially there's a sort of shaggy dog story about you know a, a, a bank robbery that goes wrong and um there's a bit of a love triangle between three characters i don't know it's 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 a it's an odd one i watched it uh it's one of those things when you're a film journalist you watch in a private press screening at like nine o'clock in the morning and there's like two other people oh, in the yeah. cinema and it just feels like this is not a nine o'clock in the morning film this is a film you watch at like midnight <laughs> at the prince charles or something and you've had a few beers and there's an atmosphere to it because it's 
Yeah. It's just strange. It's it's a film you need to watch with an audience, I think. That's precisely the one when we watched The Greasy Strangler. Do you remember? I remember that yeah, very well. That, yeah, yeah, Terry was very excited by this. At least um, that, that was a Friday afternoon, rightly. though, right? This is, that was a Friday afternoon. I recall it being a morning. I recall... No, it was no? afternoon. Afternoon? Yeah. I think we had just watched Moonlight, or I had just seen Moonlight beforehand. Oh, my God. So wow, it was what quite a, a contrast to go from that to this. But but yeah, it's um, it's it's a hard, it's a tricky one, really. I think if you hated the Greasy Strangler, then you're probably going to hate anything yeah. with Beverly Laughlin. If you liked the Greasy Strangler, mm-hmm. there's a chance you might still hate an evening with Beverly Laughlin. It's it tests your patience a lot. There's a lot of drag jokes that get dragged out. That um, that it's 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 just quite odd and. Not not always in a successful way. Perhaps it's very long. I feel feels like it's way too long. Um, but again, it's just like unique, and I'm really happy that someone like Jim Hoskin is allowed to make movies in the way that he does. Um, so I, I, you know, it's 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 very hard to it, it's very dependent on the kind of person you are, whether or not you will like this or not. But I had fun with it in a. I think, be, sort of way. Will there be a cinematic uh, universe for this? Because I feel like there's, like the characters, they all kind of fit in together, right? I think so, so they... yeah. And the, there's a couple of actors from The Greasy Strangler who pop up in, in this film um, in, I, a, I need to see a in a joyful one. way. So I'm sold. Let, let's hope that there's more films in this sort of really strange, uh, confusing world that he's built. Four stars then for an evening with Beverly Laughlin. Very quickly in dispatches, also out this week, we have The Hate You Give. Yeah, uh, this is the adaptation of the young adult novel um, uh, starring Amanda Sten- Stenberg, um, based on the Angie Thomas uh, novel, uh, and it is um, it's really really good actually. This is this is basically about Star Carter, who's a young girl living in a deprived, uh, mostly African American neighborhood, uh, who witnesses one of her childhood friends being killed by a policeman, being shot by a policeman. And she then is put in an incredibly difficult position. Should she testify or not? She she suspects that nothing will be done if she does testify. She fears that it won't matter. But it will, nevertheless, bring down the world upon her head, you know, from sort of racist people who want to defend the cop in all circumstances to the drug gangs in her own neighbourhood who don't approve of anyone speaking to the police in any circumstances. Um, led, in this case, by Anthony Mackey's King. So it's um, it's kind of a, a drama really about her choice. Like, what does she do? How does she react put in this impossible situation? She's fantastic, thankfully. Uh, Regina Hall as her mum and Russell Hornsby as her dad are brilliant. It's a really strong family unit and you get really invested in mm-hmm. these people's well-being. It's quite a long film. Like it's, I think, north of two hours, if I remember correctly. Um, but it kind of earns the time. It actually spends it on character rather than just on sort of incident or playing things up. And yeah, I, re- I really liked it. I thought it was really, really good stuff. Fantastic. Four stars. Sounds great. Mm. Sounds really, really cool. Uh, the Hate You Give is out already, came out Monday. Indeed. Four stars for that. Uh, and also this week, it's a week of four-star films. We have Swedish thriller The Guilty. We gave that four stars. And we have the Norwegian movie Yatoya July 22 which is a Norwegian movie about the events of July 22nd, 2011, when Anders Breivik killed 77 people, most of them teenagers. And that, of course, was made into a film by Paul Greengrass, which is on Netflix, 22 July. And uh, then we have the new film from Gus Van Sant, four stars for Whacking Phoenix and Jonah Hill in Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot. John, you have 30 seconds to say something about this. Uh, it's uh, the new film from Gus Van Sant. It's probably a return to form for him. It's a very uh, likable comedy drama about a real-life cartoonist who 
John Callahan, played by Joaquin Phoenix, who uh, is an alcoholic who gets into a car crash and uh, is left to be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And it's all about him recovering from that crash, but also learning for uh, going through Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step program and recovering from alcoholism. Uh, and in the process, learning a bit more about himself and uh, his friends and family and loved ones. One second to spare. Well done. Yes! <laughs> Uh, and I'm going to point out as well that if you haven't seen a lot of John Carpenter's great movies on the big screen, a lot of them are being re-released this weekend in cinemas across the country before uh, coming out on Blu-ray and 4K, all that sort of stuff. Among them you have Escape from New York, you've all seen that, you've yep. got Lay Live, one of the greatest, longest fight scenes in history, you've seen that. What have they got? What else? The Fog? The Fog's amazing, everyone loves The Fog. And my personal, well, I don't know if it's my favourite, but one I'm going to shout out, Prince of Darkness, if you haven't seen that, I think it is Carpenter's last great, truly great movie. It is really weird, but <laughs> very, very good. And so quickly, from out. an art point of view, the, the posters have been designed by a yeah. guy called Matt Ferguson, and yeah. he's a phenomenal illustrator, and he's really brought a new dimension to it and freshened it up a bit. Um, but it's still got that classic vibe, which yeah. is uh, it's quite cool for anyone collecting those kind of, kind of things. Absolutely. For John Carpenter fans. Check him out, check him out. And, uh, of course, the best film in cinemas still, I think we can all agree, is Jerry Butler and Hunter Killer. Uh, <laughs> can we all agree I that? Think we, I think we can all agree that. Uh, mm. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by People I've Forgotten. I should have written this Oh, my God, down. they're my favourite. They're really good. Oh, I can, uh, I can fill in. I'll come back. Hang on a second. <laughs> I, I can, I can <laughs> figure out who, who we have. Oh, I know who it is. Oh yeah, it's Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Hey, Ooh. there you go together because they produced and started. <laughs> <laughs> I got to introduce them to each other. It was it was glorious. Until that auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it is goodbye from John Nugent. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Diddly. <sighs> it's okay, Chris. Of all the souls I've encountered <laughs> on my travels, this is not. <laughs> It's goodbye from Molly Gibbs for the. Oh no! I mean, I had to. No, I mean, uh, James wasn't here, so I had to kind of do it. Yeah, yeah. James isn't here, but you can catch him every Monday on the Pilot Podcast. I'm cutting that bit out. He uh, told me. He, told, he said he'd get really <laughs> narky if you did. I've cut that out. I never do. <laughs> <laughs> I always leave it in. Yeah. Oh, James getting narky. Ooh, ooh, ooh scary. <laughs> Ollie, you're about to leave. You can sum it up. I'm, uh, what is? What, are you sad to be leaving Empire? What has what Empire meant to you? Do you have a parting message for the listeners at home? Uh, working at Empire has been like genuine, like a family. Uh, when I first joined, it was uh, fresh, kind of fresh out of uni. So meeting and working in the publishing industry and working with you guys, and um, it sounds like I'm sucking up to you, but um, it was really quite a humbling experience to see people who are so passionate about what they do and... They, they know what they're talking about. You guys have so much knowledge about film that I had to pick up quite fast, learn about film. And um, yeah, it's just been nice to be working with you guys. And uh, I, I think that I'll probably miss that the most, really. It's kind of that, the knowledge and the the heart that you have for, for what you do. Uh, you, the passion is insane. Um, I don't think I'm ever going to work with anyone like Empire, uh, apart from... Empire. Apart from Empire. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's it's been a fun ride. Uh, I think for the listeners, I say just uh, 
keep supporting Empires as much as you can. Um, what, Empire Design? Empire Design. Yeah. <laughs> follow us on Twitter. Um, uh, and follow my new podcast, Empire. Um, but, uh, yeah, just I, I guess just keep loving film, keep supporting Empire as much as you can, and, uh, yeah, and, and enjoy. enjoy. Enjoy film. Enjoy um, it. Amen. No, just me. Oh, don't, wow. a, don't applaud him. We don't applaud traders at this podcast. <laughs> I'm gonna applaud myself. Right, okay, yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. I've said it before, but you're you're an amazing guy, really, really talented, and it's very, very we're we're very, very sad to see you go because you've been a tremendous part of the team for five and a half years. But go, go. Yes. Some Fly. birds. Some, <laughs> you're free now. Some I can birds, hear the shackles yes. coming off, and it's like, wow. Some birds are too beautiful to be caged. <laughs> I made that sound like Hannibal Lecter, didn't I? <laughs> it sounded like your Sam Neill in Event Horizon. Some birds are so beautiful to be caged. <laughs> anyway. I'm going to miss this. You're very kind to say something. That's, that's <laughs> very sweet. Yeah, it's time for my meds. But, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, it's goodbye from Ollie Gibbs and it's goodbye from me. I am off to pick Ollie Gibbs up, wrap him in a big bear hug and then turn him upside down Shake him like that what? and see if the 30 pieces of silver emerge. Oh. <laughs> I thought it was going somewhere else. I was getting quite excited about that. Oh, God. Oh. On that bombshell. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>